Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello and uh, welcome to this to the LSE for this uh, online event. My name is uh, Eric Neumeyer. I um, used to be a professor in the of environment and development in the Department of Geography and Environment, but currently I'm a co-director or pro-vice-chancellor planning and resources uh, at the LSE. Before uh, I come to introduce our guest speaker for this second in our annual Sylvia Chant uh, lecture series, let me make uh, an announcement that I'm incredibly pleased to make, which is that uh, with the considerable help and input by Gareth Scholes, a professor uh, in the department and uh, a dear friend of Sylvia's. We have managed to secure a gift from an alum, Etienne Catestin, I hope I got that name right, who studied on the MSc Urbanization and Development in 2009 to fund a Professor Sylvia Chant scholarship. The scholarship provides fees and a stipend with preference for a candidate resident outside the UK. And I can only tell you that Sylvia would be so pleased, so enormously pleased about this because she deeply, deeply cared about students. Wonderful, just wonderful. So now I am very pleased to be here to welcome Professor Kathy McLean to the LSC today for the second lecture, as I said, in our series organized in memory of our dear colleague, Professor Sylvia Chant. Kathy is Professor of Development Geography and Vice Dean Research for the Faculty of Social Sciences and Public Policy at King's College London, just across the road. Kathy's research revolves around issues of gender, poverty and violence in cities, especially in Latin America and among migrants in London. In her lecture today, Kathy will discuss the nature of and the resistance to gendered violence against women from scalar and interdisciplinary perspectives. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Truth. This online event is being recorded and all going well will be made available as a podcast, subject of course to technical difficulties. As usual, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to Kathy. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to myself and I will post as many as I possibly can to her. Please let us know your name and affiliation as we're particularly keen to hear from our students, alumni and incoming students, so please let us know. But now I'm delighted to hand over to Kathy. Kathy, over to you. Thank you so much, Eric, for the introduction and also for the wonderful news about the Sylvia Chance Scholarship. And I can't agree with you more that Sylvia would be absolutely delighted by that. That's really amazing news. Um, thank you so much for your wonderful introduction. And also, I'd like to say that I am actually at the LSE. I've walked across the road from King's. I was teaching until six o'clock tonight. 
So I always feel like I'm doing it in person, even if I'm in the Department of Gender Studies. Um, so just to, to start, I'd, um, I'd like to thank the Department of Geography and the Department of Gender Studies for inviting me um, to give this, this uh, the second annual Sylvia Chance Lecture, and particularly thanks to Gareth Jones and Hazel Johnson. Um, this is an intensely personal lecture for me to deliver, given that Sylvia was one of my closest friends for, um, for over 30 years, as well as my PhD supervisor and uh, a long time co-researcher over very many years. So it's a real honor and a privilege. And I know that Sylvia is up there somewhere looking down. Before I start, I'd also like to mention Sylvia's family and particularly her sisters, Adrienne and Yvonne, as well as Michael, Philip, Olivia, Juliet, Rupert, Hattie, and Sylvia's late mother, June, as well as her husband, Chris. I really think this lecture is such a wonderful way to keep Sylvia's memory alive for her family, her friends, and for the wider research community that she really influenced so profoundly. So um, I just want to, my slides don't seem to be moving, but I'm, Uh, um, uh, very slowly, my slides are going to be moving. Um, this talk is not a homage to Sylvia, but this lecture would not have existed without her. I would never have done a PhD or worked in this field if it hadn't been for Sylvia's enthusiasm and encouragement. Sylvia taught me so much about how to do research epistemologically and methodologically from a feminist geographical perspective. And we shared many moments together doing research here, um, a whole range of wonderful photographs from our, our time in, in particularly in Costa Rica and, um, and the Philippines. Um, so I thought it would be really fitting to, to show these photographs of Sylvia as a researcher and really where it all began um, for me. These were really um, formative years of lots of research and also lots of fun. I'll inevitably come back to Sylvia's influence as I deliver the lecture tonight, but I just really wanted to start with the uh, photographs. Kathy, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it seems that you're not yet sharing. So I think you need to press the share screen so people cannot yet see any photos or anything else you are putting up. And Kathy, if it doesn't, ah, and now I think it's coming. Ah, there we go. Wonderful. Now it's up. There. These are these wonderful photographs that I've just mentioned. Um, I looked through my photo archive. Um, I think Sylvia would have approved of that. She loved photographs. And these are a mixture of photographs from our, as I mentioned, from our days in uh, uh, doing research in the, in the Philippines and in, in Costa Rica. 
So as I said, um, I'll inevitably come back to Sylvia as I, as I go through my talk this evening. Um, but I want to um, move on to really talk about um, uh, the nature of what I'll be, I'll be um, discussing tonight and really start by talking about collaborations. Sylvia taught me that collaborations were essential for doing ethical and sound research, particularly when it involved working outside of the, of the UK in the context, particularly of Latin America. So I just really want to pay tribute to all the people who've been partners in the research that I'm talking about this evening. And particularly, um, I'd like to mention Paul Heritage, Renata Petal, um, Yara Evans, Moniza um, Rizzini and Sari, all of whom contributed so much and, and many, many more people as well. In terms of what I want to, to talk about, um, this is going to be a very translocal, hopefully very geographical lecture. Um, I will be talking about the nature of gender-based violence um, uh, in, amongst Brazilian migrants in the UK, um, but also in the context of Rio de Janeiro, and particularly um, a specific uh, community in the north of, um, of Rio de Janeiro. Um, this is a community that is, uh, I'll be talking about, is dominated by a range of armed groups and high levels of police violence. But it is also home to, home to 140,000 people. Um, and this is a, a community of great vibrancy, as well as um, a, a community or a territory of 16 favelas um, of great, uh, great potency that I will talk about. Um, my final map is of the Latin American community in London, of which, um, um, of which the, uh, the the Brazilian population is the largest uh, is the largest group, and they're distributed throughout the city. Um, but this relates to some earlier work that, um, that 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 I did prior to working on gender-based violence. So in terms of the argument and the, the thinking of, of tonight's talk, I really want to, to consider the ways in which it's really important to move from mapping gendered violence and revealing its nature in this context in, um, amongst Brazilians in London and in Marais in, in, in Rio de Janeiro, um, and moving to think about uh, from revealing to, to practices of resistance. And also to think about those resistance practices from the perspective of curation, particularly with a whole range of artists and different art forms, to co-production. Again, in this translocal perspective. And I will be jumping, I'm sort of warning you at the beginning, I will be jumping from uh, from Marais and Rio de Janeiro to the London context. And what I really want to consider are the, the multiple ways in which we need to think about uh, social science, geographical scholarship, feminist scholarship, curation through working with different artists and practice, um, linking very much to the, to the policy field as well. So, I just wanted to comment on the, um, the title of my talk, which is um, Painful Truths. 
And this comes from a, uh, the words of a Brazilian migrant woman um, from Minas Gerais in, in, in Brazil. And uh, actually where I got the title of the report that Yara and I wrote in 2018, We Can't Fight in the Dark. I'm going to come back to this towards the end of my talk. And basically Valentina talked about the importance of doing this type of research. We need this type of research in order to be able to fight gender-based violence. We have to be able to reveal the painful truth, but then resist it and shift towards transformation. So this is the sort of the key ideas that I want to talk about this evening. So, and again, thinking about uh, the words of, of Bell Hooks, moving from painful stories um, that I will be talking about, but also this really important point that she made, that we have a responsibility, not just to portray particularly women from the margins, from the peripheries as suffering and as um, stories of pain, but also of hope and resistance, however that might make, may be manifested. What I also want to think about is this need to shift the gaze from the suffering body, from the individual, to also the ways in which structural and symbolic violences are also deeply gendered and implicated um, in the violence, but also the resistance that women develop. And here um, I'm engaging with uh, Latin American scholars such as Veronica Gago and Rita Segato. So it's really important to avoid culturally essentialist interpretations of who experiences um, gendered violence. And here, I just wanted to, to make one point from this table. Having worked with Sylvia for such a long time, Sylvia loved a table. Our last book together um, had, had plenty. She was incredibly, incredibly fond of them. Um, the point of this table, which is taken from the UN Global Database on Violence Against Women, the point I want to make here in the, is that um, obviously uh, data on gender-based violence are notoriously uh, incorrect, uh, incorrect and they notoriously underestimate the nature of, of gender-based violence, in this specific case, intimate partner violence. But here I think it, it is telling that the lifetime experiences of intimate partner violence are recorded in Brazil at 17%, whereas in the UK, they're recorded at 29%. The point here is that um, although I'm talking about Brazilian women, Brazilian women are not the only people who experience gender-based violence in all its multiple forms. Here, I just really want to put down a, a conceptual marker um, about conceptualizations of resistance to uh, gendered violence and specifically gendered urban violence. I really just want to pay tribute to um, the wonderful work that Latin American feminists have already done on a whole range of forms of resistance, both in the public sphere, um, but also um, thinking about resistance to, to everyday violence as well as intimate partner violence. The types of uh, resistance that are in red are the ones that most closely align to what I um, want to talk about today. Feminist artivism, which is 
um, activism through um, through art and feminist activism through art to also thinking about strategies and resistances of the everyday and the everyday politics of women's agency. And all this work relates to different contexts in Brazil, in El Salvador and in Honduras. So I want to start with the idea of mapping and revealing gender-based violence and starting with um, Brazilian migrant women in London. Here, again, I think it's useful to consider Sylvia's work, um, which very much did reveal a whole range of uh, different types of gender inequalities, particularly in terms of uh, the gendered nature of poverty and female household headship. And this is something I think she was very committed to throughout her career. Coming back to Brazilian migrant women in London, what we have are incredibly high levels of um, life, uh, lifetime experiences of um, uh, violence in the private, uh, private, but also particularly in the public sphere. Um, I'll also ask you to remember these, uh, these, these figures because they're going to come back um, in, I hope, interesting ways towards the end of my talk tonight. What's also really important here is that um, uh, emotional and psychological violence, almost half of the women um, talked about this. Um, also significant thinking about the translocal is that although more than three quarters of women experienced gender-based violence before they left Brazil, more than half experienced it again in London. Again, on a, on a, a methodological note, this, um, these percentages come from uh, a survey that we did with um, 175 Brazilian women, mainly um, cisgender women, and uh, although we did include uh, one trans woman, we included more trans women in the context of, of Rio de Janeiro. Also really important point to make that um, is the, the, the importance of understanding gender-based violence as it intersects with structural, symbolic and infrastructural violence. And this is especially significant for women who have insecure immigration status in, in London. This leads to them fearing reporting um, because they fear deportation. And this is used as a control by perpetrators. Um, so women are vulnerable to that in, in that context. But it also is in the context of a very hostile immigration environment. And so it's also used as a tool of the state. This is state violence. And then this links with a whole range of, of other issues in terms of English language competence and, um, and lack of information. And we can see here that um, more than half of the women that we spoke to never reported um, uh, the violence that they'd experienced. The image on the right is also, I will come back to that when I um, start talking about curation and engagement with artists, but it speaks to the, the quotation from Christina where she talks about how um, she felt trapped. She felt like her hands and feet were tied. She had no way out because she didn't have um, uh, the, the documents and the local council um, couldn't support her as a result of that. So moving again, thinking about the translocal, moving to Rio de Janeiro, I think the interesting thing here is that the actual incidents from a larger survey with over 800 women, 
um, uh, a lower proportion identified gender-based violence, um, but with higher proportions identifying it in the private sphere. The key point here is that uh, women often didn't identify the types of violence that they experienced as violence. Um, and so it was often only through talking to them or them engaging with NGOs and women's groups that they then started to actually note and name violence as gender-based violence. Again, we have high levels of emotional violence um, as well as, as, as physical and sexual. As in the case of the UK, I think it's also really important to note that, um, that uh, gender-based violence is not a one-off um, incident and uh, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, they, they, they occur as intersecting and as multiple over women's life, lifetimes. Oops, sorry. Um, again, thinking about the intersections between gender-based violence and other forms of structural violence, um, I mentioned at the beginning that the territory of Marais is dominated by these three gangs, um, the Red Command, the Third Command, and the, Mil the Militia. But as a result of that, um, it also um, experiences on a very regular basis, police incursions. So in the course of two years, um, there were 71 police incursions into the territory, into the 16 favelas, resulting in 58 deaths. These are mainly of men, but it's also really important that women often have to deal with this as well. It's often their husbands, their sons, their brothers, their cousins, their, their friends who, who, who die as a result of this type of violence. Here, the levels of disclosure and reporting are even higher, um, uh, uh, more than um, or almost two thirds, and only two and a half percent actually reported to a formal um, source such as the police. And there's a, an example here from a woman, Cassia, who talks about her husband um, trying to kill her. Um, she reported it to the police and they didn't come back to her until eight years later, clearly much too late. So here I want to move from the revealing. So um, the real importance, I think, of research to reveal this type of violence to the curation. Um, and in part, um, what I've been trying to do with this body of research is counter what we might call data deficits through the social science, through the geographical research, but then also to think beyond that, particularly when we talk about understanding gendered violence, but also creating um, resistance to that and working um, through creative, artistic and what we call counter mapping methodologies. And in part, this reflects decolonial feminist approaches, but also relates to, I've already mentioned, bell hooks, but also um, um, wonderful um, um, Brazilian thinkers such as Paulo Ferreri, um, as well as other more specifically Latin American um, decolonial um, feminists. The other issue that I want to move on to talk about now is um, this uh, continuum of participation in relation to arts-based methods and the ways in which there's, a, there's an interplay between curating with artists and shifting towards um, co-production with research subjects. So the first uh, piece of curation that I want to talk about um, is uh, the uh, development of a verbatim theatre play. 
based on the research that I've just spoken about amongst Brazilian mi migrant women in London with Gael Lecornet, who is a Brazilian um, act actor, director, and writer, who took the 25 interviews that we, um, that we conducted with the Brazilian migrant women and created a verbatim piece um, called Ephemera. Um, and it was a story about uh, a Brazilian migrant woman with insecure immigration status um, and her interactions with a, um, a, a British woman called uh, Joanne, played by Rosie <clears throat> McPherson. And we, and we showcased uh, the, the, uh, the play with three performances at Southwark Playhouse, um, initially in, in 2017. And then really interestingly, I, I told you it was going to be very translocal. We actually took the play um, and performed it in the territory of Mare and in a feminist um, theater festival in, in, in South um, Rio de Janeiro. And we did it uh, in, in Portuguese and in English. The, um, the quotations that you can see here come from um, the Brighton uh, Theatre, uh, sorry, Theatre Fringe Festival um, from 2018, where we um, tried to elicit, or we did elicit, uh, some feedback from the audience. So I won't um, read through this, but I think the important thing to note here is the way in which this story, which is an amalgamation of um, uh, the range of, of um, uh, the Brazilian women's uh, lives uh, in London, the way in which they speak to, in this case, the, the Mexican-American woman, um, but also a middle-class white um, English woman um, as, uh, as well. Um, Um, again, and please excuse the puns, but because of the nature of uh, the ephemeral nature of the verbatim theatre play, um, we did manage to perform it, um, I think, seven or eight times in total. But obviously, um, this, is, this, this is fleeting in many ways. Um, so it's very easy to develop a very close connection with your audience in this context, but it is ephemeral. So what we did was, uh, well, uh, Gael did, she created a 10 minute film from the, the, the play called Anna, again, also with Rosie McPherson. And we then um, took that to a range of uh, international film festivals in the US, Croatia, India, and so on. Um, and you, you can see in the, the bottom left, um, Gael won a, a range of, of um, awards for this, which was rather wonderful. Um, I also think it's useful, again, thinking about these engagements as a form of activism. And these are Gail's words herself when she, she states that, you know, activism has the power um, to change the future and that she's always been about creating awareness and uh, <clears throat> the ways in which art can really try and um, uh, make change and, and pressure change. I think it's also quite interesting, again, to come back to Sylvia at this point. And I think although um, Sylvia doesn't necessarily uh, work directly with artists um, in terms of her, her, um, her research, um, she was incredibly creative. And I'm sure many of you um, will remember 
the wonderful book covers that she created with her long-standing friend in the Gambia, um, Suelle um, Nachi. Um, and uh, several of the books that, that uh, I co-authored with Sylvia um, had these, these wonderful images on the, on the front. So here, I'm not going to play this video, but I want to sort of slightly shift um, the ways in which um, we engage with, um, with uh, artists and, uh, uh, and the role of, um, uh, of, of, of art as a form of communication. And uh, I said, I'm not going to play this, but we created a viral video, partly from the play, Ephemera, but we also worked with some animators um, to, to basically create a five minute viral video whereby we embedded the core findings, the headline findings um, from, the, from the research. We included a whole series of recommendations here and we targeted this at policymakers. And um, uh, we, we, it's been incredibly useful actually for really showcasing um, the core findings of the research, which was very different, I think, from the more emotional and the more visceral communication from Ephemera and from Anna. I'm moving back, well, partly, I'm staying in the translocal, um, uh, but I'm shifting to the research um, that was conducted in the territory of Marais. And uh, the interviews with the women from Marais were turned into a, an audio-visual installation by the um, renowned theatre director um, and artist, Bia Lessa. And she created this amazing um, uh, multimedia installation for the Women of the World Festival um, at the Southbank Centre in the Royal Festival Hall in, 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 20, um, in 2018. And uh, um, we, we, um, <clears throat> we showed this over the course of, of three days in the, um, at the WOW Festival. But also, um, and this is the image on the right, we also brought two women um, from Marais um, to, the, to the festival, one of whom was a, um, a trans woman. Um, I also want to show this, I want, I want to think about, um, again, coming back to engagement um, with campaigns, to engagement with policymakers. And this is a, uh, a piece of work that, um, that I did with this wonderful campaign called Step Up Migrant Women, that's led by a, a longstanding partner, the Latin American Women's Rights Service. And um, uh, I, I conducted, or we, there was a team of us, conducted the research with um, uh, women from 22 different uh, um, countries to really um, try and capture their experiences as uh, women with insecure immigration status who had experienced gender-based um, violence. And then this report called The Right to Be Believed that you can see, um, really uh, uh, was then used in the Step Up Migrant Women campaign. And it was particularly used to try and lobby and advocate um, the, around the Domestic Abuse Bill, which is now the Domestic Abuse Act. And the campaign did succeed in getting some concessions, although sadly, full rights for women with insecure status were not secured. 
what, I, what we also did with this research um, is, and this is through the wonderful um, King's Visual and Embodied Methodologies Network that I co-convene with um, two colleagues, um, Yelka Bulsen and, and Rachel Kerr, and a whole range of other wonderful people um, at King's. But then also working with Gael again, and we took some of the stories, or three stories um, from this research and created an audio piece, a soundscape. And one of the most interesting experiences I had with this sound, soundscape, which was voiced by very high quality sound, voiced by, um, by actors, was that we did a presentation to the home office and it was the creative piece we put it at the end. Um, I did this with the coordinator, Elizabeth Jimenez from Step Up Migrant Women. And so many of the questions related to the ways in which um, uh, these creative uh, pieces can be used to influence policy and it's something that I'm incredibly interested in and and continuing um, to work on. Okay so here I want to move from mapping, um, I've talked about cu curating, the work um, particularly with Gael but also with Violetta was very much um, uh, the, the, the artistic or the artist interpretation of um, the, these women's experiences of gender-based violence. But what I want to, to shift to talk about is um, um, the co-production with women um, survivors and women who experience gender-based violence themselves. And in some ways, um, uh, this, is, this, is, this is paradoxical because uh, the research that I'm talking about here has all been conducted with our wonderful partners, the Casa das Mulheres, the, the Women's House in Marais, um, with the core partners, this is a, a, a subsidiary of, of Redis de Marais, Hegis de Marais in, in, uh, in Rio de Janeiro, but it's all been conducted from our part in London um, online, but with our local partners. And it, it, it told us, or it showed us so starkly, unless you have very strong relationships um, and you conduct co-produced research, it just doesn't work. And it certainly doesn't work in the context of um, this very familiar <clears throat> um, Zoom um, picture, the Zoom portraits that um, you're probably all um, seeing, seeing tonight. So I want to talk about different ways in which um, this work, um, and I'll come back to London in a moment, but this work has been shifting and moving towards thinking about how we've worked in a, in a, in a co-produced way to really register feminist counter-narratives, particularly in this context about um, the stigma of coming from a favela um, territory. Here, um, um, uh, we've done some really interesting mapping, which we're still in the process of, 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 um, of doing. Um, and I really want to sort of show the shift from mapping the incidents, mapping the reporting and the disclosure towards a much more collaborative um, um, piece of, 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 of work that we've been doing to really trace particularly women-led initiatives in the territory. So the first two maps that you've seen um, are very much focused on, uh, are, are relate to the, to the survey that I spoke with, with 800 women, and just uh, incorporate actually 15 of the 16 um, favelas in, in the territory. 
And then the one um, on, the, on the right is about networks of support. So the, the dots in yellow are the community-led initiatives and the dots in blue are the community-based organizations. So in other words, thinking about the resourcefulness and the power that's coming from this community, that often, again, data deficits, you, we, we often don't map this. So this was a form of, of, of counter mapping using this GIS technology um, that, that, we've been, that we've been developing. I want to come back again to the, those were um, much more traditional maps in many ways, um, but I also want um, to come back to the art and um, thinking about ways of trying to capture um, in a visual way um, experiences of, experiences of, of um, indirect and direct violence. And so we worked with um, an artist who sat in on focus groups that, that we conducted and did she, she did these observational drawings. And um, um, I'm just going to share two of them. Um, um, and I just think they're so interesting because they talk about particularly indirect forms of um, oppression that these women experience. Um, they talk about women who don't fit uh, normal standards, trans, lesbians, more masculine, poor, um, lots of pressures that women feel, um, uh, harassment, and, and also how people feel. There's a scar. Um, I feel suffocated. But we were also really keen to capture everyday forms of resistance. And so this observational drawing is much more focused on, on various forms of resistance practices. We've got the, the meeting about gendered violence in the Casa das Mulheres. Um, we've got women um, talking about very reactive um, forms of resistance, putting a nail file inside your bra. Um, but also longer term measures, legal measures, education, talking to children, therapy and, and self-care. Um, uh, so so we, we really tried to sort of capture the whole continuum, the whole range of different types of, of resist, everyday resistance practices, again, captured visually by, um, by this artist. Here, I want to move on to a, a, a very, and, and in many ways, more direct form of co-production through body mapping. Um, and this is done through, through, with my research team, would you believe partly on Zoom, the middle photograph here is a, is a Zoom shot, partly on Zoom and with our, our local team. Um, body, body mapping is a form of body territory um, mapping. Um, much of which, which, not exclusively, but much of which um, comes from um, uh, Latin American indigenous women's cosmologies and thinking about the ways in which women's bodies and territories are part of the same ontological um, continuum. Now, I won't go into these body territory maps in any, any great detail, um, except to say that the one on the right is, is uh, uh, the body territory map of a, a black trans woman who talks about um, very uh, severe violence that she experienced. There's a whole range in the middle of her stomach. She identifies all the weapons that people have used against her, particularly um, as a trans woman and high levels of, of transphobia. But she also talks about resistance. She talks about the Casa das Mulheres, the women's house, um, and, and um, particularly about her friends 
and how she has developed ways to cope with um, the violence that she's experienced. The woman on the, the, woman on the left um, is, a, is a black indigenous woman and she talks about the, the various forms of, of violence and how that is written on her body, how that is embodied, the violence is embodied. But she also identifies in her right hand, it's a book. She sees books as resistance. She talks about in her legs, dance and exercise as resistance. So again, some really, really interesting ways around um, how violence is embodied, but also how resistance is also embodied. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. Here, I want to move on to a different form of, um, uh, of artistic engagement, um, focusing around uh, what we call social, mem <clears throat> social memory technology. And this is through a collaboration with the Museum of the Person, which is an online museum based in Sao Paulo. And they've developed this methodology, um, which is a form of, um, of oral history and collecting bi biographical narratives, which also relate to wider community histories. And it's very much um, inspired by the work of Paulo Freire and Augusto Boal. And it relates to a, where the name comes from, performing this, this intangible heritage where memories can travel and memories can communicate. And what we did here was uh, we worked with 10 women who were explicitly engaged with the arts in different ways in the territory of Marais. And we actually launched this, uh, I'll show you some examples in a moment, but we actually launched this last week on um, <clears throat> International Women's Day. And it's part of a wider exhibition called Vidas Femininas, or Our Feminine Lives. So I just want to show you some examples of four of the 10 women that, um, that, uh, whose, stories, uh, whose stories that, uh, that we told through these short videos um, that they're between sort of five and eight minutes long. And uh, there's a sort of a, a lovely title to this part of the online exhibition, which is um, Stories of Women Who Conquered Their Space, uh, or Their Spaces, Art and Resistance. So I'll just go through these really, um, uh, really quickly. We've got um, Beatrice, who's a slam poet, who talks about her ancestors, um, who talks about the favela as the Colombo. Um, the Quilombo is, a, is a, a slave resistance community in Brazil. But she also talks about necropolitics, remember um, necropolitics and the politics of death um, in her poetry. So really sophisticated um, um, poems. Um, Rafaela is a, is a seamstress and an artisan, and she works particularly to challenge stereotypes and stigma about coming from the territory of Marais. And you can see hopefully her t-shirt she, she's made, written in English, made in Marais. <clears throat> and she talks about this logo as being a form of resistance and, um, and, and, and about um, communicating what it means to be a person from Marais. Juliana, 
again, um, engages as a violinist in a different way. She talks about engaging with music um, as a healing process, um, as well as one of self-knowledge. And then finally, Irasi is a singer and a composer, and she talks about um, uh, the way in which she composes almost like resistance songs. If my world has fallen, let me learn to, to get up. So they're really, really powerful um, narratives about um, their collective and also individual um, um, art forms and the way in which they've used that to understand their lives, but also to deal with endemic um, um, urban violence, as well as, as uh, individual and, and, and intimate partner violence. So again, very briefly, I just really want to just highlight um, four, uh, four issues um, uh, in terms of um, the emergence of formal and informal feminist collectives in the territory of Moray, really fascinating um, transgenerational community knowledge sharing. Um, grandmothers are telling mothers, telling daughters about local codes. How do you cope? How do you resist? Also, ancestry recon uh, reconstruction and self-care and how this is really linked with um, what Veronica Gago talks about, potentia feminista, feminist power. We've also done some work on emotional bonds and emo emotional communities and the ways in which that, um, that feeds into more collective engagements, particularly around and coming back to one of the maps I showed earlier, women-led community initiatives and women-led community histories. Okay, back to London and again, back to thinking about co-production and a return. I started the talk with the report um, that, that is entitled, um, we, we, um, we, need to, we Need to Fight in the Dark. What this work is in the London context, again, thinking about the shift from curation to co-production, it's um, <clears throat> a project working with Migrants in Action which is a wonderful community theatre organisation um, uh, directed by someone called uh, Carolina um, Angusani, Cal Angusani, and, um, uh, and a, a Brazilian uh, artist called Nina Franco. And they developed this project with me um, called uh, We Still Fight in the Dark. And what they did through a range of applied drama workshops um, using music, writing, poetry, and um, <clears throat> art, is that they made a film that encompasses different ways in which they worked online and in person. This has all been done um, in the last two years of the, of the pandemic, or actually in the last year of the pandemic. Um, and um, they created uh, poetry. These are two poems from, from two of the par participants that actually I won't um, read out because they appear in the film that I'm going to show you in a second, as long as I can get the technology to work. This is just a wonderful photograph from the film. This is the creation of the, of, of the, of the film. This is the day that, um, that uh, we did the, the filming. Okay. I'm now going to show, it's just over four minutes, the film. And again, I think the point before I start to make is that these women um, made this themselves. Okay, so this is not the artistic interpretation of Gael or Bialetta or other people. This is these women's interpretation. And the interpretation of my research report. Um, uh, and 
they critiqued it as well, which is also a really interesting experience for me. And it felt like it very much come full circle. It was returned to these women um, who are themselves survivors of gender-based violence in London. You are not welcome. welcome. Oh, Brazilian. I know what you are here for. You are not welcome. Who are you? Não sou bem-vinda. Go back to where you belong. I belong nowhere. I don't belong here or there. Não me encaixo. Where are you going? Hey! Stay in bed. Where you excel. Medo. Medo. Fear. Medo de perder meus filhos. Medo de vingança. I fear deportation. I shrink. Não pertenço lá, nem cá. They have the power. Poder, poder. Solta. I keep you walking. Don't hurt my flesh. flesh, flesh. of Brazilian women experience some form of gender-based violence in their lifetime. 78% of the violence against Brazilian women and girls in London was perpetrated in the public sphere, especially especially in the the workplace. The home emerged as the second most commonly identified place where violence violence against against women and the girls occur. 56% of the Brazilian women never never reported an episode of violence. Sofreram alguma forma de violência de gênero durante a vida. A vida. 56% das mulheres brasileiras nunca denunciaram um episódio de violência em Londres. Ela, 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 ela,
nos encontramos nos desejos do afeto, nos desejos de romper a dor. Nos desencontramos na falta de empatia, nos privilégios da cor. Onde dói a tua dor? Eu existo, negra. Nos encontramos como mulheres migrantes. Nos desencontramos no direito de imigrar. Tivemos a nossa história queimada e, com isso, nosso direito de ir e vir impedido. Não sabemos nossa história e, tampouco, temos ancestrais europeus. Onde fica a tua ferida mais profunda? We exist, Brazilian Black Women. Existimos, Black Latina Women. Nos encontramos na vida na luta, na força de um movimento. Nossa caminhada não é a mesma. E assim, nesses desencontros, nos encontramos. Okay, so <clears throat> um, I hope you're able to hear the sound on that, although there were some um, subtitles as well. Um, and, and again, the sort of the really key point that uh, I want to take away from that is obviously the women talked about their pain, but the process of, of this, the, the top um, quotation or comment is from a woman prior to being involved. And she talks about, she wants this hurt, um, to be taken away from her using the art, um, something that feels like a heavy suitcase full of clothes that no longer fits her. The second woman, it was after the film was made <clears throat> and she talks about how her parents had died when she was young. And she, um, the only picture she had her uncle took away from her. And she talked about participating in this film, giving her hope and joy, saying that her image is there for everyone to see. And she's going to be on the screen forever. So I just sort of feel that this co-produced experience meant so much to these. It was 18 women in, in the end, but it just meant so much to them um, because of the co-production um, alongside broader forms of curation. So the final piece of work that I'm going to talk about brings together various aspects of what um, this sort of, uh, it's, not a, it's not linear, but thinking about mapping, thinking about curating, um, and thinking um, about uh, uh, co-production and women's voices. And this is a podcast project that has been developed um, with the Latin American Bureau and um, on the King's side with a whole range of people, but on the King's side, um, also with my colleague, um, Yelka um, Boerson. And it's fascinating, it's been a fascinating process um, also because these podcasts are multilingual. They're in English, Spanish, and in Portuguese. And two out of the, the three that you see here um, have been uh, focused on the Women's Acasa das Mulheres and, and some of the some of the and, and the research that I've been talking about, as well as the campaign that I mentioned earlier and the work with um, um, uh, migrants in, in action. 
And so they, the podcast had, had three core episodes. The one from Guatemala doesn't relate to, to my research. But then the other thing that we did is that we had a workshop where we got podcasting people together. This was new for me. And um, I, I, it was, it, it's, it's a really interesting um, medium. And I sort of really like this idea about the ways in which podcasting generates intimacy um, and, and, and uh, with, the, uh, with the listener, but it's like whispering in someone's ear. Um, and it also is about a way of communicating and a, of, of building, building hope. And the other thing that I should say is that uh, we found out yesterday that we've been, we, we were shortlisted from Amnesty International um, 2022 Media Awards. We got down to the last top 10, but we didn't get down to the last top five, um, which meant we, have, we haven't gone through to the final. But we were up against The Guardian, BBC and Al Jazeera. So we were very pleased that our little, um, our little podcast um, um, actually at least has been recognised by Amnesty International. Okay, I just want to um, finish up now and uh, very, very briefly, um, uh, just really sort of reiterate how I tried to trace this shift from mapping and revealing to curating and working with artists in interesting ways, using different art forms to co-production on this journey <clears throat> from gendered violence to resistance and the ways in which we can have productive engagements for understanding and resisting. And I'm really thinking about what does this really mean for scholarship, for, for the arts and for practice, I've mentioned policymaking. And really, um, I think I would, I, would, I would finish with saying that it's very important to really challenge the separation or their autonomy. Um, I found that the work that I've been doing in this collaborative way has really, um, um, it's been really important to work um, through these interplays along this con continuum, again, which is, not, which is not linear. I'd like to finish though with two, what I think are wonderful photographs of Sylvia. The one on the left um, is from her research in Mexico, in Querétaro, where she did her, her PhD, one of the families that she interviewed. Then the one on the right relates to, is much more recently, and relates to the work that she did um, uh, trying to, um, to uh, criminalize um, female genital mutilation and cutting with an NGO that she worked with called, called GAMTRAP. And I think it's really nice to think about um, Sylvia's role. She's been revealing, as I mentioned earlier, she's been, she has revealed throughout her career. She's left this amazing body of work about revealing gender inequalities. But also, um, she may not have done it explicitly in her writing, but she looked at forms of resistance um, and these forms of resistance to really engender transformation in the longer term. So I'd like to finish um, finish there. So thank you very much. I'm going to stop sharing now. Thank you very much, Cathy. Uh, that was a really, really interesting uh, talk. I mean, I have to say I particularly like the photos of Sylvia because it just shows her uh, just how full of life uh, she was and, uh, you know, that she went to so many different uh, places to, to work in and, and in each one. Uh, she tried to really make uh, a difference. So thank you very much for that. We'll now come to uh, some questions. Uh, let me start with 
Samuel Mafi, I hope I get that name right. He's a student at uh, Leeds University. He or she, I'm not entirely sure, uh, in any case it doesn't matter, and ask the following question. In terms of reporting challenges, is there any mechanism or mechanisms in place in the UK safeguarding protocols or policies which would foster safe or friendly mechanisms for survivors of violence? If yes, are these women briefed on it? Do they know about it? If not, what should be done and by whom? Okay, really good question. Um, there are some safeguarding um, measures, um, but they're only for a specific group of people. So if you have insecure immigration status, um, there's, there's a, um, in order to stop you becoming homeless, you can access state support. However, the vast majority of women can't access this. And there's so many forms of evidence that are required in order to prove that you've experienced, in this case, domestic violence, it's almost impossible. Um, the, the vast majority of women who have insecure immigration status um, also have no recourse to public funds, which is a, a sort of a British immigration term to say you have no access to any welfare facilities. So these women end up having to go to um, NGOs who then, <clears throat> then help them. However, they can only help them up to a point, because if they try to go through the British judicial system, it's, it's more or less impossible for them. So part of the campaign, I don't have time to go through the, the details, but um, there's information about the, on, in the Step Up Migrant Women campaign website, whereby they, um, they, um, the, whole, the whole aim is about um, engendering safe reporting. They did get a big win with the um, with the the police association um, of the UK, whereby they have they have tried to ensure that the police do not automatically um, refer women who come to them to report violence to the Home Office. It's called a firewall. Um, so, but the problem is is that individual police officers act in different ways. So it's a major challenge when when women have insecure immigration status. Thank you, um, Kathy. I should already say that we probably will have more questions than I can pose to you, so I'll I'll have to be selective. But let me go with this, the second one uh, from uh, Catherine uh, Prickell, uh, who is uh, a scholar at Royal Holloway and one of Sylvia's PhD students in the mid uh, 2000s. I'm particularly pleased uh, that she's with us. She says, "Thank you for a brilliant talk. Could you share more about the challenges of co-production, please?" what lessons you learned from doing it and anything you might do differently in the future. Hi, Catherine, thank you for coming. Um, thank you for your question. Um, Co-production is not easy. And I think uh, there are multiple challenges. One of, the, one of the key issues I think is that um, we think co-production is all about everybody getting on terribly well, about everyone, um, being equal in terms of power relations, and that's absolutely not the case. Um, we had challenges, uh, uh, for example, trying to run a research project from King's, um, working with local partners, um, money not getting through, contracts being incredibly um, complicated, um, and often feeling like we were in a hierarchical relationship. Coming from the, you know, an elite institution in London, working with um, a most wonderful community organization um, in, in Rio de Janeiro. 
So the extent to which this was truly co-produced, I think was, was, was challenged actually. What we have tried to do and what I, I didn't have time to talk about is that um, this is a long-term partnership. And I think co-production can only work if you have a long-term partnership with an organization like we do with the Casa das Mulheres. And that we also have plans to continue um, moving beyond using the research in ways that they can develop policies. Um, so, so I think in, in, in that sense, it's incredibly difficult. And I think this, the term co-production is bandied around a lot as if it's, you know, going to, you know, you're going to be super ethical just by doing it. It's actually not the case. It's incredibly difficult. And I'm sure, Catherine, that, that you're aware of this um, yourself in, in, in your own work. Thank you, Cathy. The next uh, one is from Lawrence Maitman Plandell, LSE uh, Urbanization and Development MSc alum. Uh, thank you for this amazing talk. Could you please tell us a bit more about the social technology memory? Are the oral histories stored in an archive? And does the museum plan to collect the experiences of other women in the future? Thank you for that question. Um, yes, so the, the Vidas Femininas, the Feminine Lives exhibition, um, it, it's, it, it is stored, they are stored in an archive. So as well as the 10 women that we worked with, there are other videos that you can see on the, the museum website um, in their exhibition. And so there's women from all walks of life. Um, the ones that, the ones that, that, that we have posted as part of our um, um, working with the territory of Marais, they're all in, in Portuguese and, and in English. So they're publicly available and you can, can, can look at them, but there's, there's lots of women's lives and they will stay there. The aim of this museum is to um, record people's lives. The other wonderful thing that they're going to do is also um, they're developing worksheets to work with local school, not local schools, at the national level, to work with schools um, using these videos, um, linking it to the research about the nature of gender-based violence and, and resistance, um, and, and get teachers to talk about them in, in the classrooms. I mean, one thing that I probably didn't say explicitly enough is really social memory technology is a form of digital storytelling. Um, but focus very much on 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 memory. Thank you, Cathy. So the next question is uh, from Mariana Mayumi Hiroki Tamashiro, who is uh, an LSE student from Brazil, and I presume from her uh, surname, she is one of many uh, ethnically Japanese uh, uh, Brazilians. Boa noite, Mariana. Boa noite. <laughs> Uh, thank you for the amazing presentation, uh, she says. How do you think it's the best way for Brazilian women to find support since they are afraid to report through organizations or how can they find out about these organizations since many are feeling isolated? Thank you. Another really good, um, another really good question. Um, it is really difficult um, and I think actually particularly in rural areas. Um, the, the territory of the 16 favelas of Marais is um, very densely populated. And as you saw from one of the maps, there are lots of community-based organizations, partly because of problems with the state um, that I mentioned, actually providing services there. Um, and what the, the NGO, what Hedges de Marais and Casa das Mulheres, who we work with do, is that they do a lot of outreach work. Um, and actually what happened when we did the, um, the work, the, the survey work with 800 women, um, the local researchers talked about this being a really good way 
for spreading information and um, you know highlighting what gender-based violence was. And then they um, asked these women to come to the, um, they, they set up a, a range of, um, the other partner that we work with is the Federal University of, of Rio de Janeiro. And every Saturday they have a legal clinic with um, law students, but also law professionals. And women can go there and access legal help for free. And they also have a range of counseling and, and other forms of support for women. But this, so that was partly through outreach and then so through, or through the survey, but they also do outreach work. And it is really key because um, it, the, the data showed us, you know, that, that you know, that, that the incidence was lower in Brazil um, than it was in, in the case of London. And, you know, that's probably not necessarily accurate. So, I mean, I think um, it is a real battle and it, it absolutely um, is, a, is a real issue. In Brazil and in, in lots of different countries, you know, we've got to be careful not to to identify this as a, as a uniquely Brazilian issue, it absolutely um, um, isn't. But I think the role of these NGOs in the third sector is absolutely crucial here, because often the state, particularly the state, particularly in these communities, is seen as a, as a perpetrator of violence, actually, rather than a, a form of support. Thank you, Cathy. I think the next question by Sukanta Banachi is more along these lines. Uh, Thank you for a fascinating talk. Is there any way women and girls, often without legal papers, can access local counseling, counsel, sorry, local council safeguarding services and safe homes? Good question, because if they are afraid to, you know, come out as being without legal papers, then how can they access these services? Um, it's more or less, well, in terms of refuges and safe houses, um, there is one safe house for all Latin American women, not just uh, Brazilian migrant women, run by an organization called LAWA, Latin American Women's Aid. Um, and they provide that on the basis of donations and, and contributions. They can't get into the state system because they, they're not given support. And that was a lot of the lobbying of the Step Up Migrant Women campaign was actually to get the British state to acknowledge um, uh, women with this insecure immigration status and no recourse to public funds. So it's only the NGOs and again, the third sector who provide refuges and safe houses for these women. And as I said, there's only one um, specifically for Latin American women that provides you know, culturally appropriate services. Thank you, Kathy. Next one, uh, Kavita Datta from uh, Queen Mary University of London. Uh, thanks, Kathy, for a great talk. Can you say more, please, as a scholar who has worked on gender-based violence for a long period of time, what are your more recent engagements with diverse forms of arts, artistic methods, or other forms, and, and what have they enabled you to do? Hi, Kavita. Thank you so much. Uh, great question. I mean, I think, <clears throat> I think what there's lots of different ways depending on the form of the artistic engagement. Um, I think uh, the work where I talked about the role of the artist is taking more centre stage. Um, I sort of felt that, that I had less role in the communication. However, I, also, I do think that um, communicating and raising awareness uh, is possible through using theatre, through using film, um, in a way that writing writing an academic paper or even a report in Portuguese is able um, to do. Um, so uh, 
and I also thought also engage, engaging with artists like in this context Gael she looked and she was obviously Brazilian but she allowed me to understand the process of gender-based violence in different ways that I may not have thought about I think working and again thinking about one of the more recent um, engagements in terms of this film um, on we still uh, we still fight in the dark that was just the most amazing experience with these Brazilian women survivors and I mean in, in some ways that's much more of a therapeutic engagement rather than raising awareness but um, the quality of the artistic forms that these women um, that these women created was 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 really really amazing so I think in that sense um, it's also about them making a state uh, making a statement to the world of raising awareness about letting their community know um, and it's been a really it's been a really humbling experience to to go back to the community I mentioned in the talk that they critiqued um, my report they may have talked about the findings in the report but they also critiqued it so we well, didn't do this and you didn't do that and so and and, and they made sure they put it in their artistic work so I think and again, I think different art forms bring different things um, to different audiences as well. And I think I've learned that it's not linear um, and, and, and it's not up to me to control it, actually. Um, you know, it, it's, it's sort of you've got to run with it and it increases the communication, awareness and a sort of a therapeutic, uh, sort of a therapeutic angle as well. Thank you, Kathy. The next question uh, is also uh, from um, an attendee from Queen Mary. Uh, Olivia Kwiatkowska says, thank you for this talk. I'm Olivia from Queen Mary, and I just wanted to ask, did you find there to be any particular trends in relation to LGBT, LGBTQ plus identity? For example, more abuse towards trans women, specific trans in queer relationships? Um. In terms of, uh, in, in the context of the territory of Marais, um, we did more work uh, with queer women and um, as I mentioned with trans women than we did in, 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 London, in the London context. And uh, what emerged, I think, particularly, I think I mentioned working um, with trans women with very, very high levels of gender-based violence. Um, and uh, working with the, the queer women, we did a focus group, um, with uh, um, uh, five lesbian women. And uh, I think what, what they showed as a project um, was very high levels of politicization. These were women who were working in their local community. They were involved in a whole range of feminist um, initiatives. And um, uh, they also talked about violence in, in queer relationships as well, actually. Um, and the need to, to, um, to resist these forms of violence, but they were very politicized and, um, and really talked about this, this what I talked about this, um, you know, potentia feminista. Um, certainly that, that's my experience of, uh, you know, of working with these women and several of the women actually in the, in the museum work as well, um, identified as, as queer and, um, again use the art to really um talk about uh you know talk about their identities and talk about their power and talk about feminism um but yes certainly they did they also experienced it in queer relationships that's absolutely the case thank you Kathy. the next question comes from uh, alba murcia uh, thank you for this presentation 
I was wondering what do you think the future of creative forms of resistance is? Do you think that there's a possibility of states or countries, whether Brazil or the UK, moving away from more traditional forms of support for, for survivors of gender-based violence and funding more creative strategies like you have shown us? Thank you, Alva. Uh, really great question. I mean, what I didn't, well, I sort of, I sort of intimated, I think, that this is ongoing work. And it's, 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 a, it's something that we're, in fact, trying to work with now in, in terms of the, the women, Brazilian migrant women project in the film. The next step in that project is to, we're working with the Policy Institute at King's um, to develop a, a tool um, a policy-making tool where, whereby we reflect on the creative practices as a way of engaging with policymakers. We haven't done that yet. Uh, we're in the process of doing that. But I would certainly like to, to hope that um, the creative methodologies that we've been, that we've been working with um, actually do draw people in and allow people to, to understand um, the, the soundscape uh, that, um, that we played as part of the Step Up Migrant Women project that I, that I talked about. When we did the, the, the talk with the, at the Home Office, the other thing that came up that was sort of really interesting was actually being able, in this case, to, um, to hear the voices of women um, voiced through actors um, and also keep those women safe. The women in the film were very much wanted to be in the film. They, they wanted their faces to be on the, the film, but women don't always want that. And so the creative arts allows women to, uh, to engage in an anonymous way and to communicate in an anonymous way where they might, they might be fearful, for example. And the other thing that came out of that work was uh, uh, a couple of people at the Home Office said, you know, I think this really speaks, this allows us you know, there's this shift towards thinking about lived experiences, but it's a sort of a policymaker's term. It's like the type of work that we've all been doing, including Sylvia, been doing, you know, all our careers is um, exploring lived, you know, lived experiences. Um, but I think policymakers are starting to discover what a lived experience is. And I think creative methods and creative methodologies actually allow us um, to, um, to communicate uh, those lived experiences in a way that it's all, all often really difficult to capture on in in text on the written page. Thank you, thank you, Kathy. So I believe we have answered all questions. So we have one more input from one of our attendees, to which I will come in a moment, uh, and that's because Kathy, you have been absolutely brilliant in. Uh, you know, giving short answers to all the questions because sometimes people give them mini lectures on each question and it takes five minutes to answer one question, but you have just been uh, amazing, which is great because then we can really answer all the questions uh, that there are. So the last one uh, uh, that I want to mention here is Rosalind Jill, who is a scholar and friend of Sylvia's. She says she doesn't really have a question. It isn't a question, it is a statement. Thank you, Kathy, for this powerful and moving lecture. I found the film so powerful and it really touched me to see what this form of visibility meant for your participants. It truly shows how powerful and life-changing research like yours and Sylvia's can be. Thank you, she says. Not really a question, but I think it's a wonderful 
concluding statement. Let me then also thank uh, a number of people. First of all, I want to thank the attendees. Uh, I know it's a, I believe it's a Tuesday night, though in my, uh, it's everything is a little bit uh, scrambled, but I believe it's a, it's a Tuesday night and we've, all of you has thought we had a, a long day. So thank you very much for uh, attending. Uh, I want to uh, thank the organizers of the uh, event, uh, Isabel, Nicholas, and others, uh, our amazing uh, team who make this uh, work. I want to thank uh, Gareth, who's put in a lot of time and effort uh, into this uh, lecture series, uh, but also, uh, again, to say he's really been a driving force behind the scholarship. And I've just thought, have I really thanked Etienne Kadistan, who I don't know whether he is uh, on this call, but in any case, if I forgot to thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for your very kind uh, donation. Uh, it makes all the difference to us. We want so many more of these so we can uh, truly bring in the brightest students independently of where they have uh, the means. And lastly, of course, I want to thank you, Kathy, our guest speaker. Uh, it's been uh, a very interesting uh, talk. It's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity to listen to you. Thank you very much for taking part. We are most grateful you could find the time in your busy schedule to give this second annual lecture in memory of our dear and beloved Sylvia. Thank you very much, Kathy and everyone. Thank you and have a wonderful rest of your evening. Thank you and bye-bye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.